really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby. I am your host. My name is David Lawrence, and I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, you know what? I would love to hear from you. It's easy to do. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast, and you can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So, as always, there was a ton of rugby this weekend, and there was a lot to talk about. We may even run a little bit long this week, so let's just jump right in. So we start with current updates, and you know what? Baseball season has begun for my son, and he's very excited to get back out there. You know, it's a bit of a struggle with the amount of standing around you necessarily get with baseball practice, and keeping first graders involved and attentive when they're camped in the outfield is a, a challenge, to put it mildly. But, you know, bless him, he's, he's good for it. There's so many times when he's dutifully waiting with hands up in fielding position while the other kids are out there drawing in the dirt and taking their shoes off. It, it just warms my heart to see. So last year, he was one of the younger ones on his team, but this year, he's one of the oldest, and I'm just genuinely looking forward to taking him to his practices and games. It's one of those odd things where, you know, let's face it, it's pretty boring as a spectator. But on the other hand, I mean, you just can't put a price on seeing him making a catch or a good throw or getting a good hit. It's it's a magical experience. Um, he's still timid about catching the ball the right way, but uh, I just bought some tennis balls so we can practice without worrying about taking a, a hard baseball to the eye. From my own experience, it is simply inevitable that he will get hit in the head with a ball at some point. So my biggest hope is he won't want to quit when that happens. Um, by the way, if you'd like to buy a raffle ticket to help support youth baseball, get in touch. Oh, and quick update from this past weekend. My boy went five for five, and I've started calling him Thunderbat. He's stupid! He's stupid! People have to know! Well, Isa, let's hope it's good news, but honestly, I guess we'll all know more tomorrow. So in the latest news regarding Worcester Warriors' future fate, an ultimatum has come down. Quoting here from an article linked in the show notes, quote, Worcester Warriors buyers must complete a takeover of the club by May 2nd, that's today as I record, according to a report issued by Administrators Berg, uh, Begbie's ta uh, trainer. I always screw that up. Begbie's trainer. Begbie's trainer. The deadline was activated when Atlas, headed by Jim O'Toole and James Sanford, was chosen on February 1st as the new owners over a rival bid from the former directory, uh, director of rugby, Steve Diamond. Worcester were placed into administration in September for unpaid debts with the Department of uh, for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, their biggest creditor having loaned the club 14 million pounds. As a result, they were relegated from the Gallagher Premiership, but rather than compete in the championship next season due to a dispute over terms with the RFU, Atlas announced its plans to merge with semi-professional fourth-tier club Stourbridge. Stourbridge? Stourbridge. Still don't know. If Atlas is unable to make the deadline of next Tuesday, which is actually today, then Begbie's trainer must find a new party to purchase the club's assets, which includes Six Ways Stadium. In the 27-page progress report, published by the administrators, it, it was revealed that Atlas would not be able to sell Six Ways within five years of purchase if its takeover does proceed. If the sale fails to go ahead, Atlas will lose a £500,000 non-refundable deposit that was paid on February 1st as an ex uh, exclusivity fee. 
Atlas plan to rename Worcester Warriors as Six Ways Rugby was abandoned due to opposition from fans. Yeah, no kidding. The RFU announced in February it was blocking Worcester's entry into the championship on account of Atlas' failure to prove it met its criteria for inclusion, which includes a fit and proper persons test. Quote, the RFU has been clear that its priority was to enable Worcester Warriors to play in the championship and Worcester Warriors women in the Premier 15s in a sustainable way, unquote, a statement read. Quote, the information required has been asked for repeatedly and deadlines were extended to provide the best possible chance for this to happen. Our priority is to ensure the best interests of rugby and the rugby community are preserved, unquote. Well, as, as I mentioned, as we're recording this right now, the deadline has just past i i literally looked it up and tried to find some updates before i started and uh there's nothing so keep an eye out for you know whatever updates wherever you get your rugby news so moving on to our thoughts of the week and my thoughts this week are on australian rugby of all things so i just saw they've announced a sizable profit for last year which is something they haven't been able to do for a long time quoting here quote rugby australia has announced a surplus of 8.2 million dollars at its annual uh, at its 2022 annual general meeting returning the business to profit for the first time in four years the welcome boost comes on the heels of a difficult financial period for ra after the impact of covid led the governing body uh recording a 27.1 million dollar deficit just two years ago rugby australia chairman hamish mclennan hailed the result as a major turnaround after jobs were shed at ra and players forced to take significant pay cuts during the lean times in promising a bright future for the code in australia mclennan paid tribute to ra chief executive annie marinos uh, more on him I probably next week because I'm behind on the news with that, as you will probably all know, uh, for being instrumental in helping revive the once cash-strapped organization. Quote, the last two years have been a wild ride for us, and with the removal of COVID restrictions, we were able to return to a full year of rugby and restore so some normality in the business, unquote, McLennan said. Quote, to turn this thing around in such a short time is a great testament to Andy and the team at Rugby Australia, as well as the resilience of our game. And with the promise of a Lions tour in two years, as well as the home Rugby World Cups in 2027 and 2029, rugby is very much on the rise again, unquote. The 2022 financial result comes off the back of a 31% increase in revenue, largely thanks to a return to a full season of match activity and events. Match day revenue grew by 85% year on year, largely thanks to the highest match attendance at Wallabies tests since the 2013 British and Irish Lions Tour. Wow. With 265,380 fans attending six matches, including three sellouts. Australian rugby's dramatic turnaround in financial fortunes comes little more than a year after RA reportedly considered returning the code in Australia to the amateur ranks. Quote, there can be no doubt about how deep a hole rugby was in as a result of the pandemic. We were genuinely on the cusp of a catastrophe, unquote, Marinos said. Quote, it has been a real grind. We've had to be incredibly disciplined financially, yet still delivering results across the business in participation, marketing, and promoting a full season of rugby growth in commercial venue. Getting that balance right has been difficult. However, we are now rewarded with being in a strong position as we move forward to this year's Rugby World Cup, the 2025 Lions Tour, and our home Rugby World Cups in 2027 and 2029, unquote. Good news for them, to me, is good news for everybody. I just think rugby is best when the Aussies are major players, and I'm already getting excited for what we'll see from them in the next World Cup and going forward. Great stuff. 
Okay, that brings us to our reviews. And this weekend was, of course, the final round of the Women's Six Nations Tournament. It featured a match that, I'm told, broke all the records for attendance, including those set in the Aotearoa for the World Cup. That match, of course, was England versus France, where the Red Roses jumped out to a 33 to nothing halftime lead, only to be outscored 5-33 to in the second half for an incredible almost result for France. It was 38-33 to for the English. Then it was Italy at home for Wales, and after Wales went up by a single score to make it 10-17 to at the break, they went nuts in the second half. Italy failing to score another point and falling 10-36 to at home in Parma. Then, to finish off the tournament for the year, it was Scotland hosting Ireland, and the Irish managed to score first, but Scotland got the edge at the half in a low-scoring contest, 5-3 to in the second half. Oh my word. Sorry, Ireland, but it was awesome. Scotland adding another 33 points, though Ireland did score in double digits for the first time in this tournament. Very curious to see how Ireland handled this mess going forward. At the end of the day, it was England going undefeated, France going 4-1, Wales likely very happy at 3-2, Scotland got their two victories late on, Italy managed a nice one themselves, leaving the Irish with the wooden spoon. So, in European action, the Heineken Cup semifinals brought us a couple of delicious-looking matchups. I ran my little polls on Twitter to see who you all thought would win, and the fact that Leinster versus Toulouse was like 55 to 45%, I mean, that just made me even more excited than I already had been, which is saying quite a lot. At least as exciting was the fact that Exeter got exactly zero votes for the other fixture. Classic. So, Back to the Aviva it was for two well-rested and jacked-up teams, each eager for various revenge dishes. For me, it was hard to see Leinster losing two in a row this year to anyone, and all gods know when they're at home, it is a mighty task just to stay in games. But we would see. Of course, this would be the rematch from last year. The weather forecast said it would almost certainly be raining. I was hoping that wouldn't affect play too much. Uh, coming into this one, World Rugby's Men's Player of the Year, Josh Vanderfleer, was the leading try scorer in the competition with five. His Leinster side conceded an average of 9.8 penalties per game this season, the second-best disciplinary record of the 24 starting clubs. They'd need to keep, of course, close track of rampaging Thomas Ramos, who scored 29 points in the quarterfinal against Chelsea Sharks, more than any other player, and the most points scored by a player in a single match this season. He also made the most kicking meters in the round, 449. And that's, of course, before you even consider Antoine Dupont, who's made five try assists against the Sharks, the most in a single Heineken Champions Cup match. He and Jimmy O'Brien also made joint uh, round-high uh, round five clean breaks. So it was hard to imagine an, a more even matchup in any way. You know, at least as they say, on paper. So this one started just as bruising and as high tempo as you could possibly imagine. It was Leinster drawing first blood and the crowd were in absolute top form. Toulouse hadn't won in Dublin since 1997, but thanks to an eye-popping 50-22 by Ramos, the visitors actually led 6-7 after a quarter hour. It was pure edge-of-your-seat stuff. Speaking of Ramos, a huge moment where he was yellow-carded for an intentional knock-on, and it looked like the home side were gathering serious momentum. Two quick tries in a row for Leinster, and I was already just getting that feeling of inev inevitability when watching this team. A third try before Ramos had returned looked like they'd already wrapped things up after just 25 minutes. A bit disappointing, if I'm honest. Cards on the table. I was very much rooting for Toulouse in this one, and I found myself kind of shouting at the screen like, drop it, do something stupid, knock it on, whenever Leinster were driving. But you know what? They don't make mistakes. 
it's it's simply incredible how immaculate their game has become. 27 to 14 was your score at the break. It was hard to envision this one turning around. Uh, another yellow to Toulouse and another subsequent try for the host. And I wrote, game over in the old notes. I was really hoping for a closer contest today, I have to say. Um, as I'd feared, the wheels totally came off after that. The five-time European champions getting fairly skunked at the Aviva. It was 41 to 17 when all was said and done. Wow. La Rochelle versus Exeter was, of course, the other absolute beauty we had on tap. And much like the Dublin forecast, it appeared likely to be raining for this one as well. This would be the first ever meeting between these two teams. And while the Chiefs have struggled in the Premiership this season, not so in the Heineken Cup, where they won three from four in the pool stages before defeating Montpellier and the Stormers in the knockouts. Meanwhile, La Rochelle had been on fire, looking to win back-to-back titles, topping their pool with four wins before seeing off Gloucester Rugby in the round of 16 and Saracens in the quarterfinals. That was amazing. On the French side of things, Antoine Hastoy had scored more points in the competition than any other player this season with a whopping 73. More on him later, while Gregory Aldrit had made a competition-high 41 pick-and-goes so far this season, amounting to an unrivaled 42 meters in contact from such carries. He made more carries, 97, and contact meters, 116, than any other player. So, right from the start, it was... (laughs) It was alliteration central as they announced Sam Simmons, desperate for a successful swan song. Whoa, guys, ease up a bit, will you? Dave Ewers and Stuart Hogg both found themselves among the replacements. A uh, bit surprised by that, frankly. Either way, at the 90 minute, uh, 92nd mark, actually, Austin Healy had already gotten his list of all the things they got wrong to, I think it was three at that point, which put us on pace for 160 for the match. I couldn't wait. So... Chiefs actually managed to score first. Both sides just so quick and so aggressive, but La Rochelle, they weren't phased. It was 14-7 to at the half-hour mark. That was, sadly, the moment when Johnny Gray went down with what looked like a grisly knee or leg injury, very much hoping it looked worse than it was. Such a great player. After Exeter got shown yellow, it was the easiest try of Aldrich's career, practically walking in all alone out of a dominant scrum and, quote, It's looking like a very long afternoon already, unquote, said the comms. It was 26 to 7 headed into the break. The smiles started to take over for the home side. Raymond Rule getting the next score and deepening that hole. I almost started to feel for Exeter for a split second before I came to my senses. And with their sixth try just at the 53-minute mark, this one was well done and dusted. Credit to the Chiefs. They certainly didn't think it was over, and they racked up some serious points in the second half. But it was 47-28 to with just three minutes to go in the round. Quote, they've had too much power through the course of this game, said Johnny, uh, unquote, said Johnny Beattie, and that would be the final tally in the semifinals, a repeat of last year's final locked in, and I seriously needed a drink at that point. Over in the Challenge Cup, we started with Scarlet versus Glasgow. This one was going to be so good. I was so keyed up. Glasgow entered the weekend in great form, having won four URC games in a row, including a 12-9 success over these Scarlets on April 14th at home. Meanwhile, the Scarlets had lost their last two URC matches since their Challenge Cup knockout wins to slip to 14th in that competition, 10 places behind their rivals for this weekend. In a statistical tale of defense versus offense, Ken Owens had made more dominant tackles in the competition than any other player, totaling nine, while Glasgow had scored more mall tries, eight, and made more meters from malls, 227, woo, than any other team in the competition. Well, then we actually got started, quote, 
how nice it is to be in this stadium in the warm spring sunshine, unquote, said the comms, and I was just all in. A try for the visitors within the first five minutes showed their lightning-fast game plan, but both teams seemed to sort of tighten up a bit after that. I don't think you could say, oh, it was just great defense. It looked more like nerves and sloppiness all around to me. Kyle Stain at one point fell over for no other reason than people fall over sometimes. And as he quickly got back up, the comms huskily whispered, oh, the composure of the winger. Okay, guys, calm down a little bit, will you? So from what I can surmise, at the half-hour mark, both teams completely basically forgot how to play rugby. And I almost wonder if the EPCR is going to find a way to just bury the footage between like the 25 and the 35-minute marks. What on earth happened in there? It's weird. So the Glasgow lineup in particular began to crap its own pants. If you blinked, you'd have missed the sneaky Scarlets taking a nice lead, 11-7, to 7, seemingly out of nowhere. But this is how they win, my friends. Another kick made it 14-7, to 7, and I was honestly worried at that point for Glasgow. They just looked shaky out there. Very strange. With the Scarlets yellow and players dropping like flies, it should have been Warriors in ascendancy, but they were just off. No idea what got into them. Again, maybe just nerves? Quote, and then, said the comms, who else but the tri-machine, Johnny Matthews, unquote, as the man himself burst through with another driving ball. Glasgow finally nailing a set piece perfectly, 17-21 to 21 Glasgow at that point. Quote, the shadows lengthen at Parky Scarlet's, unquote, said the comms after a nice go-ahead try by the visitors. Glasgow were able to sit on that lead and hold out for a 17-35 to 35 win to advance to the finals. Great stuff. So good. So, Toulon versus Benetton was our last European fixture for the semifinal round. Lest we forget, Benetton were the first Italian team to reach the last four of any EPCR competition. By the way, I was today years old when I learned about the Pilu Pilu, a very cool tradition there in Toulon. I did add a link uh, with a little bit of info about it in the show notes. So, Toulon, they came... Uh, They came out in their all-black kits and looked menacing right from the start. And before five minutes had gone by, it was Parise, of all people, putting in a perfect little kick pass to get them their first try. Ominous signs for the visitors. They mentioned that Parise had made his European debut when he was 20 and that he turns 40 this coming September. What a player. However, a controversial red card to Olival had the crowd howling with derision. Benetton were looking at over 72 minutes of a player advantage. Wow. Of course, <laughs> it appeared, you know, being down to 14 didn't really impair the hosts so much as just level the playing field, at least somewhat. It was already 17 to nil before the end of the first quarter. Quote, Benetton have got their boots stuck in a pot of glue at the moment, unquote, said the comms, and things already looked grim. Around 35 minutes, the comms were apoplectic that Toulon got away with a super cynical, intentional knock-on without a yellow card. Immediately after that, the home side turned it over again, and heads on the Benetton side were hanging. Toulon, they scored early in the second half, but then things pretty much dried up, ironically, considering how much it was raining. 23 to nothing was our final score. Toulon punching their collective ticket to another final to take, the red, uh, to take on the red-hot Glasgow Warriors. Okay, swinging down to Super Rugby Pacific, they rolled out their annual culture round, a very new tradition of which I am a big, big fan. This year, they highlighted the Pacific Islanders involved with the competition and specifically looked at the Fijians and how much their culture means to Super Rugby. They did a segment with with the Hurricanes featuring a Fijian hymn and all of them singing it as one big group, learning the song and singing it together. It was absolutely lovely. 
That was when I learned hurricanes employ a, quote, mindset coach, unquote, which, you know, isn't something I've heard of before, but I love it. He spoke about the act of singing together and that, you know, that process creating a unique bond. And he said outright, quote, after this, I can guarantee these guys will play with a whole new edge and find a whole new level when they get out there together, unquote, which was a, a bold prediction. But again, something I simply hadn't thought of. Mindset coach, you are speaking my language, buddy. I love it. So naturally, highlighting players from the Pacific Islands also gave them a perfect excuse to run some Jonalamu highlights. Always a safe bet. And they did it with like current players sort of sitting there watching these highlights on tablets and commenting on how great he was. A fun little segment. So kicking us off, of course, was a great one. It was Hurricanes versus the Brumbies. <laughs> I have to start with a really funny side note, though. So one of the things I love about this competition is how hard they're trying each week in these broadcasts. They're just always adding little tidbits, just trying to tweak things to make them a bit more engaging or compelling. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it's downright silly. So case in point, it seemed like this week they decided, okay, for the interview with the coach ahead of time, instead of just standing there, we'll do a walk and talk. I suppose they they thought, I don't know, people moving is more interesting than people not moving, <laughs> standing still, I guess. So the interviewer kind of led the coach along the sideline as if they were actually headed somewhere. But of course, there was no actual destination. At one point, the coach kind of looked confused and just stopped walking. But the interviewer, he sort of looked at him and just willed him to keep moving. So they kept talking and they walked all the way to the other side of the pitch. As soon as they were done, the coach turned on his heels and went right back to exactly where they started. It was massive high comedy for sure. Anyway, so sorry for this upcoming super tired metaphor, but this one was really like a heavyweight boxing match and saw the Brumbies uncharacteristically scoring off intercepts and breakaways rather than their trademark driving malls. But both teams looked very strong on the defensive side. Come halftime, there was only a Geordie kick separating the sides, and we were set up nicely for an exciting conclusion. The hosts managed to build a six-point edge, but Brumbies were driving and looking poised to steal back the lead. However, some mishandling and then some bravery by Hurricanes, frankly, in going for the corner rather than the post saw them expand their advantage to 13 with just about six minutes to go. Frustrating for the Brumbies, who actually came in with a better record than the Canes. In fact, the only match Brumbies had lost this year was when they sent the Younglings to face the Crusaders. So they must have felt this one was, you know, one they could actually take on the road. Corey Toole, who's been a revelation since coming back from a sevens duty, he scored a sweet one out wide, but... As the conversion went awry, it was still a two-score game. A penalty kick right at the end secured a losing bonus point for the visitors, but that's all they could muster. It was 32-27 to 27 at full time. Oh, final side note for this one. It was Julian Savia's 150th appearance for the Hurricanes. The only other player with that many is TJ, who's still out injured, unfortunately. And uh, Julian is also still uh, stuck too shy of Izzy Falau's try-scoring record, really rooting for him to grab that one this season. And then Aaron Smith was back in the lineup for my Highlanders as they traveled to New South Wales to face the Waratahs. Both teams got off to fairly slow starts, the first points not coming until almost the 20-minute mark, but those points, oh, oh my word, it was Isaiah Parisi. Bullying his way through, not even kidding, bullying his way through five defenders to smash one down, get his taws on the board. If you haven't seen the highlights, I can't recommend this one enough. What a feat of strength and determination. Just incredible stuff. 
Islanders, again, my guys, they, they, they look bad this year. And they tend to exchange penalties for tries. Today was no different, though it, it was close. It was just 7-6 to six as we wound towards the break. But the home side added another before halftime. And it looked on course to be yet another disappointing day for Landers fans. I'm just going to say it. Our offense is nowhere right now. We can't put four phases together anywhere on the field. It's terrible. So one piece of good news, it was Jonah Narecki coming in to add some pace for Highlanders. They said he hadn't played since the final in 2021. Can you imagine? So, so good to see him back on the pitch. I hoped I wasn't putting too much pressure in my own head on him coming back through us, uh, through coming through for us in a tight spot. Um, important side note here. The last few weeks, I've been saying, where's Aaron Smith? Is he house hunting in Kobe and can't be bothered to play with his own club? Uh, but they finally mentioned, his father passed away and has been dealing with a lot of stuff. So more fool me for not sussing out there was potentially something, you know, more real going on. So my apologies and all the best to my favorite nine at a tough time like this. Sorry for being a numpty about it. So Pari Pari Parkinson, he got a yellow for cynical play for the second week in a row. He seems weirdly frustrated out there and it, it's not doing him or us fans any favor. Oyve with this team this year, with under two minutes left, it was the inevitable tribe of Waratahs that gave them back the lead. Bingo, bango, bongo, yet another awful failure for my Highlanders, dropping yet another one just by a single point, 21 to 20. Ouch! Then we were over to Suva for the Fijian Drua to take on the Blues. I suppose I can't say it enough. The atmosphere, I mean... The location alone blows your doors off. And then there was a haka battle, the likes of which I've never seen. And the comms said we were, quote, ready to rumble at Churchill Park, unquote. By the way, I know it's such an obvious truth that it makes makes a person dumb to even mention it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Holy but Jesus, Bowden Barrett is good. I mean, he's next level. This is years after he won World Player of the Year twice in a row. When was that? 2014, 2015? It's... Like, that's a career later. And uh, right as I was writing this down, by the way, he put in a kick that forced a return kick that was just doomed from the start that ruined the other team's field position. I mean, it's like playing on expert level in a video game or something when you have no idea what you're doing. Everyone else out there pales by comparison when he's on his game. And, And don't get me wrong, there are some amazing players out there. Anyway, side note, I loved this game that was literally the last thing i wrote down because i was just so engaged despite blues you know kind of running away with it more than doubling their hosts as we entered the final 10 minutes as the ref (laughs) decided to call an intentional knock-on just you know a regular knock-on i think to save time that was enough and he blew the double whistle blues winning again 14 to 30 in sunny suva so next up, Moana Pasifika had a nominal home game against the Melbourne Rebels. And while the lead up, of course, to the match was beautiful and compelling with all the production, this was still not truly a home game for this team. And I thought that was reflected in the turnout. There were like, I don't know, 62 people in the stands. So Rebels, they forged ahead and built a 12-point lead through the first quarter. When Tuanga Fasi went to the bin, it looked like another Frustrating day for the winless Moana Pacifica, 5-26 with a tally at the break. And their coach, during halftime, I absolutely love this guy. He's so compelling. He mentioned that his team had had to make 117 tackles just over the first 40 minutes. Tough, tough going out there. Less than 10 minutes later, it was another yellow card. I think that actually made four yellows on the evening. But 
As they often do, they did make a late surge. They found themselves down just five. With the final restart to go, it was possible. Uh, he equally predictably, they coughed it up in traffic and gave away an insult to injury try. As a result, with the clock already gone red, Monte Yuani getting in to finish things out. His first try of the year, shockingly. 33-43 to 43 for the guests. And then, oh boy, a huge match. Chiefs versus Crusaders with unbeaten Chiefs facing perennial champion Crusaders. Both rosters absolutely loaded and a massive throng on hand, on hand at FMG Stadium. Quote, you can't underestimate the size of this crowd, said the comms. Quote, you can't even hear yourself think, unquote, and, and I couldn't. So we were off to the races. It was a one-point game after the 17-minute mark. Crusaders' second try disallowed after they uh, spotted Braden Enor knocking it on as he relieved Damian McKenzie the ball. And quick newsflash, Braden Enor is an almost cartoonishly good-looking man. Woo! So after just going 5 of 9 kicking last week, it was McKenzie getting another penalty to give his team the lead. After a half hour, the crowd was going absolutely bonkers. Mwangi's attempt to retake the lead off his own boot went awry, and the comms intoned, quote, well, the cowbells are doing their job tonight, unquote. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. 12 to 7 was the halftime total. What a game. So Brody getting a try at the three-quarter hour mark gave the, the Chiefs huge confidence. This felt like a bigger test than the Crusaders faced all season last year to me. Of course, I recall saying similar things last year as the Blues swiped away all comers on their way to losing to these Crusaders. So in any event, a penalty try to the Crusaders made it 19-14 to 14, around 53 minutes Ominous tones overtook the comms as the visitors looked to capitalize on the player advantage. 62 minutes was when Mwanga's conversion gave the visitors the lead. And incredibly, the same thing happened again at 60, uh, at 71 minutes in a seesaw back and forth. But hold on your hats because it was McKenzie to Sean Stevenson. Sean Stevenson again for the big finish in the corner to make it 27 to 24. So good. The Chiefs, they wouldn't be denied. Absolutely smashing one down at minute 79, slamming. The door shut. It was 34 to 24. Unbelievable. Second time they've beaten the Crusaders this year as well. They are on a freaking tear. And to close out culture round, it was the Reds versus the Western Force. Force managed the first try of the night, but that would be all they could muster in the first 40 minutes. McDermott marshalling a quick and effective attack to take a 21 to 5 lead at the break. In the misty haze of the second half, Reds had three tries overturned in just five minutes. It was amazing. The visitors finally got their second score, making it 21 to 10, entering the final quarter. But in the end, the Reds, they looked really good, putting away the team that smashed my Highlanders just last week, despite having what I've heard described as the worst front row in rugby. 31 to 17 in Queensland to end the round and Super Rugby for the week. Okay, swinging all the way back home to good old Major League Rugby, we started off with Seattle hosting Dallas. It was a top-to-bottom beatdown by the Seawolves, devouring their opponents 61-19. to Yikes! Next up, we had NOLA versus Toronto Arrows looking to get something, anything going at home, but not this time as they fell yet again this time by 16 points. It was 40-24 to by full-time. After that, Oh, God, this is what a tale to tell. My beloved Free Jacks were at home again for the New York Bus Boys. I, I, I feel really weird about this because I actually missed this game, a first for me. The reason was 
My interviews were scheduled for Sammy Sullivan and Phaedra Knight, two incredible women I've been looking forward to talking to for weeks. And just to totally screw up my day and my weekend, I swear this is true, a car smashed into a telephone pole about a block and a half away from my house, tearing down power lines and leaving us in the dark. No power, no internet, no nothing. I wasn't even able to do those interviews. Double whammy for here for us here at the Scrum of the Earth. Um, I had to send the entire staff home as well, of course. You know, without pay, I have to mention. Um, fortunately, both women were very understanding and have agreed to reschedule. So be on the lookout for that. But oy, they what a Sunday! The good news was, while I wasn't there, my Free Jack still won regardless. The lowest scoring affair of the year for them, defeating our bitter bitter rivals from New York in the cold, misting rain, coming away victors just eight points to nil. Free Jacks win plus New York loss? Oh, yes, please and thank you. So, the round in the MLR finished up with a huge matchup. San Diego Legion at home for the Houston Thundercats. What a weekend. The Legion, again, showed what a powerhouse they are this year. All signs are pointing to them as a Western Conference champion. If my Free Jacks are able to make it to that stage, our two advantages, I'm telling you now, are going to be the neutral venue at at which the final is played and the fact that we already lost to them earlier this year. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I will explain in coming episodes, I actually think I'm onto something with this one. So, 29-16 29-16 to 16 was the final score in this one at Major League Rugby. It, it seriously gets better every single week. Just so good. So, buy that music. You'll all know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. This week, this prestigious award goes to Antoine Hastoy. Monsieur Hastoy, you led all point scorers in the Heineken Cup with a whopping 85 and still a game to play. 15 full points ahead of the number three spot. On top of that, you've led your team back to a final showdown with powerhouse Leinster and I for one will be rooting for you on May 20th as you arrive in Dublin to try for the ever elusive back-to-back championship cups Antoine Hestoy congratulations to you for you are this week's diamond in the ruck award winner well done monsieur Okay, that brings us to our updates and previews. This coming weekend marks, of course, the quarterfinals in the Ultimate Rugby Championship, which brings us two derbies, one Irish and one South African. We start with Ulster, hosting my Connacht team at the Kingspan. That one's on Friday. On Saturday, the morning kicks off with Stormers welcoming the Bulls to DHL Stadium. Lunchtime features Leinster at the Aviva to massacre, uh, I, I mean, face off against the Sharks. And finally, it's a rematch from just a few weeks ago with Glasgow hosting Munster, uh, Munster at Scotson. It's a bit of an odd weekend, I gotta say, in the Premiership, as they have this one final round to complete, but the top four spots have already been claimed. No more movement is possible on the table before the playoffs. Saracens, Sale, Leicester, and Northampton are already locked in as the teams appearing in the postseason this year. So I guess it's an, a bit of an exercise in futility, but there you are. Anyway. 
for the final round of a very, very odd year. We'll have Bath hosting Saracens, Bristol Bears at home for Gloucester, Leicester welcoming Harlequins to Welford Road, London Irish are back at the for Exeter, and Sale are home in Printerland to take on the Newcastle Falcons. The top 14 is down to its final three weeks, and this round we'll have Claremont versus Stade Francais, Poe versus Cast. Montpellier versus Brieve, Toulouse versus Bordeaux. Oh man, imagine how mad Toulouse are going to be. Racing versus Bayon, Lyon versus Perpignan, and then on Sunday, Toulon versus La Rochelle. Ooh, that's going to be good. Gotta say, I'm amazed to see my Border Beagles have fought their way to fourth in this competition, a development that only that, that basically felt outright impossible even a couple of months ago. It's a bit of a rat's nest in the fourth through eighth positions, so these final rounds could feasibly impact who we see for the playoffs quite a bit. As I said, Bordeaux are fourth on the table with uh, 58 points. Toulon have 57. Lyon and Rassing are tied at 56. And Bayon are in the race with 54. So down in Super Rugby Pacific, we're into the final third of the season. It's amazing when you think about it. The top 14 has 26 rounds, but 20 is, but Super Rugby has 15. Quelle difference, no? So on Cinco de Mayo, my Highlanders will likely take a shellacking from the unbeaten Chiefs. Oh, my God. I don't know if I can watch. The Drua will be back home in Suva for the Hurricanes. What a contest that should be. Saturday will bring us Crusaders versus the Force. Blues versus Mona Pacifica, Reds versus Wartas, and then on Sunday it'll be Rebs. Uh, the Re- <laughs> I guess I'm calling them the Rebs now. It'll be the Rebels versus the Brumbies. Finally, back at home in Major League Rugby, it's round 12. We'll have Atlanta back at the Gorilla Cage for the Second City Puppies. Dallas have, for me, a very winnable game at home against DC. Utah will be looking to prove a point as they welcome San Diego. The New York Aestheticians will host NOLA, while my beloved Free Jacks get a nice rest. Ah, bye week. I imagine there will be some serious feasting going on at Dorchester House, and if you're not on board yet, you need to check them out on Instagram ASAP. Well, my friends... That does it for another week, and I I admit, I kind of wish we could just jump right to the finals in Europe, rather than waiting three whole weeks. I mean, to be fair, there's lots of other fun stuff to look forward to, obviously, as we just talked about, but I gotta say, I'm already starting to worry about the, the barren rugby landscape looming on the horizon, but okay, live in the moment, don't think about that for now. So, as always, thanks to all of you for coming along, to everyone across the globe, cheers, Talk to you soon. And of course, be well.